Hi, everybody, and welcome to Natural MD Radio. This is your host, Dr. Aviva Ram, and this is episode 160, and it's a special episode. Well, I hope they're all special episodes, but this one is unique in that it is a shared recording of an interview I did as part of the Hormone Intelligence Chats, which was an event that was part of my launch of my book, Hormone Intelligence. This chat is with a woman I always enjoy talking with, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, who on her own personal bio says she talks about vaginas a lot, which is something she and I, of course, have in common. Lisa is a certified fertility awareness educator, holistic reproductive health practitioner, and she's been teaching women to chart their menstrual cycles for nearly 20 years. She's the author of The Fifth Vital Sign, where she debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, something else Lisa and I share very closely in common. Lisa is the host of the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. And Lisa has had me on her podcast, and it's a delight now to share Lisa with you again in this hormone intelligence chat. If you want to watch all of the videos in the hormone intelligence chats, and there are over a dozen, you can go to avivaram.com forward slash book. You'll find a link, a number of different links to purchase my book, whether you want to get them from an online big box store or an independent bookstore. And once you've purchased the book, you will come back to that link, avivaram.com forward slash book, and upload your proof of purchase. And that will unlock all of the videos um, of these chats, which are really fun. They're interactive. They're wonderful connections with some of the folks who are doing great work in women's hormonal health that I wanted to um, share conversations with you. Or if you just want to listen, I will be rolling out the hormone intelligence chats to you over the next year, but the visuals are pretty fun, I will say. Um, But for today, sit back, listen, or do whatever you're enjoying doing. Maybe you're getting some great walking in or some exercise in while you're listening. Uh, It's about 54 minutes and enjoy this introduction to Lisa her own fertility journey, her own journey of learning more about her body, why she does what she does, and hopefully you'll get some wonderful gems. It's a great podcast to also share with your daughters if you want them to understand the importance of um, cycle tracking and understanding their fertility, or maybe you'll get some gems that you share with them. So enjoy this episode. I'm so glad you're here. And after you've listened, make sure to drop a comment or um, share this with someone that you love. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Natural MD Radio, wherever you love listening to podcasts. See you next week. Enjoy, everybody. Welcome to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, and welcome back to the Hormone Intelligence Chats, or welcome if you're joining for the first time, because this was a talk 
you especially wanted to hear. I am speaking with a woman whose work I think is just absolutely phenomenal. She is thoughtful, she is thorough, and she's really spot on in what she's talking about. This is Lisa Hendrickson Jack, and she is bringing a whole new fresh view to fertility awareness body awareness, self-awareness, and the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Lisa, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm really excited. I can see your beautiful book on the shelf, (laughs) The Fifth Vital Sign with its gorgeous color. Is it a calla lily? Is it an iris? Well, to be honest, I don't know that much about flowers, but I'll tell you a funny story. So I told my uh, designer that I wanted it to look like a vagina without looking like a vagina. <laughs> and I think it definitely does. <laughs> Perfect. It's beautiful. And the book is phenomenal. And it's just, I highly encourage everyone to have a copy of it. Um, whether you are teaching um, women to be more aware, people to be more aware of their bodies and their cycles, or whether you are here as most of you are, to learn to be more aware of your body and your cycle and your hormones. It's definitely a library must have. And, you know, there are always new books coming out, and I get new books across my desk all the time. But um, So I don't say that about every book, but it's definitely been – it's kind of like the next generation of books, I think, on fertility awareness. But it's much more than fertility awareness, body awareness. Back in my day, I had – Uh, Margaret Knopfsiger's book when I was learning to track my cycle when I was 15 in 1981. I actually thought that you had to take your basal body temperature. So I had a thermometer. I got it. I was 15 years old when I got it. I thought you had to take it vaginally. So every morning I would take my temperature vaginally only to learn that. And it's fine, but only to learn that I didn't ultimately have to do that, which is kind of funny. But I do have menstrual charts or moon charts that go all the way back from 1981, which is crazy because I was 15 and now I'm turning 55. So Lisa, what, tell us something about, well, tell us about you and tell us something about you that we might not know from the average bio and what got you here in this space of women's health and body and cycle awareness? Well, um, I'm trying to think of something that, that you don't know. So I'll, I'll, I might come up with something in, in a minute. But how I got into all of this, uh, you know, my very first period was really heavy and painful. So my introduction into womanhood, I mean, I was really excited to get my period. I got my cycle, I got my first period when I was 14. So I was kind of on the later end of some of my friends. Um, But at the same time, it was still just not the greatest thing for someone who was really young and active. And so I was put on the pill pretty early. And, you know, it was, it was amazing, right? Like it, it fixed my periods. And so being an inquisitive young lady, when I saw that my period, my periods on the pill were lighter and easier, I just would come off of it every now and then only to find that they were just as painful and just as heavy. So even though I didn't have the language to really describe what was happening, I did know that it wasn't the same and that the pill hadn't actually fixed me. So when I decided when I was actually sexually active, because I wasn't sexually active when I was put on the pill. But when I became sexually active, uh, and I was looking for birth control, I kind of did the opposite thing. So I came off of the pill, because I was concerned just generally, 
my periods were super, super painful. I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know if I really had endo because I'm not going to get a laparoscopy to figure that out. But they were that bad. And so um, I had this sense of, you know, it shouldn't be this way, but I didn't really know what to do about it. And I was concerned that uh, I, I, some of the women in my family, I mean, fibroids was running in my family. My mom had a hysterectomy. My aunt had a hysterectomy. And I had wanted kids at some point. And so I was kind of like, I don't want to do anything that might make this worse. So that was my thought process. And it was right around that time I discovered fertility awareness. So for me, it was kind of this personal journey. I thought it was amazing that I wasn't fertile every day. And it really empowered me. So I was able to avoid pregnancy naturally all through my 20s. And then when I was married and we wanted to have a baby, I was able to kind of switch it up. And I kind of looked around and realized that even though I had been able to take all of this amazing knowledge for granted, essentially, for most of my life, the average woman today still doesn't know how to identify her fertile window, she still doesn't really know what birth control is doing uh, and, and uh, how it can affect the cycle. So that's really why I decided to branch out and I started my podcast and I wrote the book to really get the word out about this because I always say if we waited until the medical system or the school system decided it was important, we'll just keep waiting. So true. What what gets you most excited personally? Like when you're learning about something, you just have that eureka, completely geeked out moment. Because I know you have those moments. <laughs> um, I think uh, I don't know if this is maybe the answer that you're expecting, but I spend a lot of my time talking to women and hearing their experiences, and, and because of what I do. I work with a lot of women who've had negative experiences with hormonal contraceptives or with medical professionals or, you know, a lot of women who haven't been taken seriously. So what happens, they get like extremely upset and they see red and I found a way to channel that for good. As opposed, I always say, if I didn't do what I'm doing, I'd probably be standing out in the street somewhere with a sign just screaming at the top of my lungs because I was so yeah, frustrated. Yeah. So that's what it really is. It makes me so frustrated to see what women go through. And so I have to channel that for good. I am so with you. And whenever somebody asks me what inspires me to do the work I do or to keep doing the work I do or to show up every day, I'm like, it's my inbox. It's the women who come into my office and sit opposite me. It's the women who reach out to me on social media. And of course, I'm sure we have like very many crossover people who are doing that. And it's the same women who have felt or been dismissed. In fact, it's interesting. Um, someone was editing my book and she kept changing things like um, it said, you know, like women who have been dismissed in the medical office and she would change like women who felt dismissed. And she said, well, it sounds like you're dismissed. You're dissing doctors. I'm like, no, this is actually what happens. Women get completely dismissed and then they feel it. It's not like they feel it, but it's not really happening. And I, it's such an important <laughs> distinction. There's so many injustices and some of the injustices are accidental, right? Like doctors don't know, so they can't teach their patients. And some of them are based on very deep biases that happen in the medical model. Okay, so you're hearing from women, you're listening deeply. What are, um, before we go into what women are sharing with you, what is something that you really wished you had known? If you could look back and say, there's just maybe one or two things I really, like maybe it's that, you know, that period pain that you had just wasn't normal. Are there a few things that you really wished you had known? Um, 
Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot. I think, first and foremost, I am very fortunate that I discovered menstrual cycle charting. So I was about 18. And so I know that that's not the experience of most of the women who mm-hmm. I talk to today. Uh, but when I look back at a few things, I wish I would have known. So, you know, I mentioned that my periods were super heavy and painful and basically mm-hmm. ridiculous. So I would be on the floor. And I remember thinking that uh, I know what it's like to have a baby. And I remember, <laughs> except it's like, you're, you're super frustrating because you don't get one at the end of all this pain. And I remember I said this yeah. to my one of my cousins, and he was like, ah, that's impossible. It can't be that bad. And then I proceeded to have two children. And I was like, <sighs> yes, it was actually that bad. So over time, through the work that I do in my training, I did discover ways that are effective at reducing and minimizing that. And so if I would have known the impact of, you know, the inflammatory aspects of my diet that were contributing, and also the anti inflammatory strategies that would have really helped me to get that under control. That's something I really wish I would have known. And I feel like that also combines with so, again, we'll never know, but I have a type where I could possibly give myself PCOS if I eat ate in a different way. And I mm-hmm. certainly could gain a lot of weight in a very short period of time. I just have Mm. this body that's predisposed to basically diabetes to my family. And so I believe that part of my issue with having longer cycles, especially when I started charting in my late teens, early 20s, was related to my consumption of gummy candies. (laughs) And so there's a lot about diet that that I really wish I would have known. And even preconception, of course, every mom does this to herself. But, you know, there's so many things I wish I would have known back then. I mean, it all worked out, you know, but... Yeah. Those are some of the things I wish I would have known. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. And thank you for sharing all of that. So to be actionable, let's say someone is having really, really intense period pain or um, may have endo. What are some of your strategies that you found worked for you personally? Um, I know we share some of these, but share for you know viewers what are the ones that you would say the top few that really you feel made a difference for reducing inflammation, reducing that pain, and that you also know help you with your prevent your predispos you know prevent the predisposition from manifesting into into um, PCOS and and diabetes. Well, I would say really focusing on reducing the sources of inflammation first. So specifically targeting high glycemic carbohydrates. I mentioned the gummy candies, like I did have a problem <laughs> with all. I'm, I'm not the only one who's addicted to sugar. So I'll, so I'll interesting. The gummy candies are very specific. though. <laughs> I know. Um, and it's, it's mostly a joke. But in addition to the obvious ones, like the gummy candies, uh, as a West Indian girl, I mean, I never went a day without a plate of rice and like bread three times and so it's not about being anti-carb it's about understanding the role of high glycemic carbohydrates uh, in terms of inflammation in the body so couple that with dairy products uh, so you know conventional a1 uh, dairy products so the a1 beta casein is a protein that is highly inflammatory and a lot of women have issues with dairy for that particular reason and that's why some women can switch to goat's dairy or sheep's dairy and have much better results with their menstrual cycles so Mm -hmm. even just and that's just like a couple things right also reducing the um inflammatory oils like the canola oils and all that kind of stuff the margarine when i was growing up uh, it was just it was in the 80s and 90s where 
it, that was all the advertising, you know, switch to B cells, switch Parquet. to and, Yeah. Yeah. All of that. And, and, you know, my, or like the, the me. half oil, the half, like the half oil, half margarine, yeah. whatever that stuff was. All of yeah. That, like plastic disguised as food. And yeah. so oh. all of that stuff looking back and who knows, uh, as a black woman as well, I straightened my hair in my teens and, um, you know, hair straightener is corrosive. It's not like bleach or hair dye where you might get a little itchy when it touches your scalp. It burns a hole in your scalp. Um, so just generally speaking, that would be a part of it, kind of looking at those sources of inflammation, looking at the xenoestrogenic chemicals. So in addition to the hair straightener, all the stuff I used to use, all the lotions and all that stuff. So that is a big part of it. But to add to that on the flip side, to add in more of the anti-inflammatories, you know, we ate fish from time to time, but I would have, it would have, I would have benefited from the strategy where I'm incorporating more of those fish oils, potentially even taking a supplement on a regular basis to get in more of those omega-3 fatty acids to balance out the inflammation. And then because my pain was so severe, knowing about magnesium and zinc and turmeric and the, the well-studied anti-inflammatory agents that I, you know, I, I really like going with evidence-based <laughs> uh, recommendations because I remember as a young woman who had all this pain, you know, I would read books where people would say things like, and then she, you know, it visualized her, you know, she went through her pain and she had a good cry and then her pain went away. And I get that some people can have those experiences, but I needed like <laughs> actual actionable stuff because <laughs> my pain was yeah. very severe, I would say. And uh, so those would be some of the key strategies that uh, I really wish I would have known about to incorporate. Uh, because if, you know, for me, currently, those strategies keep me off of medication for the and I'm not anti medication, I'm anti pain. Um, but it's much better to have even to take less of those medications, or none of it, while kind of fueling your body with what it needs. Oh my gosh, thank you for all of that. I mean, there's so much richness in there. I didn't know you were West Indian. I don't think I knew that. So that's the fact that I didn't probably know. Um, and um, I, I feel you on being fortunate learning these things early, um, which kind of brings me to this. And I agree, like, yes, on all the food. And I love that you talked about what we take away, but this really important concept that I talk about as well um, what we add is really, really important. And often once we start adding those things, our taste buds shift, it becomes actually easier to keep those other things out. So what I don't really like to describe the menstrual cycle as a report card, because we can often have negative connotations with report cards. But you talked about something really important and powerful that I know ties into something we both believe is that the menstrual cycle is a very powerful um, barometer for how our overall health is. And you said um, that your family has this predisposition to diabetes, the women to hysterectomies, fibroids, etc. And so that you've learned to take those predispositions and prevent them. And part of how you're doing that is by understanding your menstrual cycle. And a lot of people might be going, what? My, my menstrual, I mean, if you're going to read, if you read Lisa's book and you read my book, you will be very knowledgeable of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Um, so let's talk about this concept, right, of how it is that 
people are like going with a menstrual cycle and diabetes. What does that have to do with it? Let's talk about that. And I'm going to lead, lead, point to you, <laughs> share what your, share what your thoughts are there and your experience and wisdom. Well, I have a, I have a few things to say about that. Uh, just, a, just a few. Uh, well, so I mean, the title of my book is The Fifth Vital Sign. And uh, essentially, that's not a concept that I made up. There's a number of, pro- you know, prominent medical um, organizations that are officially saying that we should be looking at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. And there's a lot of research to show, you know, particularly in adolescent girls. I mean, I would argue that for all women of reproductive age, but for adolescent girls, it's important and the reason for that, uh, you know, there's an, a lot of analogies that I like to use, but if I was to buy a car and, you know, it, and it, it didn't come with air conditioning or something like that, the car would still work because a car is made by a person and we can add and take away parts and it doesn't change the overall functioning of, you know, the engine or those types of things. We kind of think that our bodies are the same way. We've been sold this lie about our menstrual cycle that, are, you know, it only really matters when we're trying to have babies. And even the, you know, to throw in the birth control as an example, the birth control pill or hormonal contraceptives, uh, we're kind of sold this idea that if we shut down ovarian function, so the primary mode of action for hormonal contraceptives is to shut down the ovarian function, so you don't ovulate, which is very helpful when you're not wanting to get pregnant, because if you don't ovulate, you can't get pregnant. But we kind of are sold this idea that we can do that, we can shut down the ovarian function and our bodies will still work in the same ways. And so, you know, spoiler alert, it turns out that ovarian function is a part of the total function of a a woman of reproductive age. It's part of how our body functions. And that's why a person can go on birth control and it suppresses ovarian function. And they have all of these seemingly unrelated side effects like depression and the libido and all the stuff. You would think, how would it affect all of that if it's only about having babies? And so, you know, back to the example of how we can look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign in adolescent girls. So, for example, there's a, a, you know, an age range where young women are supposed to start menstruating somewhere between, uh, I think, average age is 13, somewhere in between age, you know, 12 and 14, give or take. So if you have a girl who is 16 and she hasn't started menstruating, you know, I had a I, I did an interview with this woman who her doctor put her on the pill because she was 16 and she hadn't ovulated. And I mean, within about two to three minutes on the call, I kind of asked her a few questions. I was like, so, you know, at that time, were you eating well, you know, were you restricting at all? And she's like, oh, I was obsessed with being thin. And I was like, so were you exercising? At all? Oh, I was completely into sports. And so her not getting her period by age 16 is her body telling her her age is, 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 you know, is fine. And the reason that she's not ovulating yet in that situation is because she's under eating and over exercising. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that's an example of hypothalamic amenorrhea where, you know, women of reproductive age stop, re, uh, stop having their ovulation, stop having periods. And I feel like that is a, a perfect example of how we can look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Um, so if you don't eat enough food to sustain your daily caloric needs, um, then your body is highly intelligent and actually stops you from ovulating as a way to preserve that energy. And um, so, you know, for the for all of those women out there and medical professionals who kind of think, well, you know, your cycle only really matters if you want to have babies. So if you're like 25 and you stop ovulating, so you have HA, 
you're at a lifetime higher risk of developing osteoporosis. Um, and I've worked with, I'm sure you have two women in their twenties who have osteoporosis because maybe they have a history of anorexia or mm -hmm. um, a history of amenorrhea. And, you know, even if you never want kids, I'm guessing you don't want to have like frail bones and osteoporosis at the age of 25. So it just goes to show we should really be looking at the menstrual cycle for what it is, which is a sign of health in reproductive age women. And we know that there are very specific ways, as you're saying, that because I get asked all the time, you know, should I get hormone testing? And I'm not opposed to hormone testing. But if you test, you can maybe differentiate hypothalamic amenorrhea from, say, PCOS. But if somebody's underweight and over-exercising, we don't need a lot of tests to show us why the period is not showing up. And either adding in more nutrition or decreasing exercise or both um, it will resolve the problem without pharmaceuticals. Let's talk about um, how, uh, well, you know what I'd love to do is talk about some of the biggest issues that come up for you in your, in your practice, in your work. What are some of the biggest like pain points women are going through? And I know fertility is one of them and hypothalamic amenorrhea can certainly be one way that that shows up. But what are some of the things that you're seeing that women are really struggling with that you feel like understanding the menstrual cycle more can help with? Uh, I mean, there's, there's quite a few, I think, um, kind of along those lines, a lot of women are struggling with just kind of general period related issues. So whether it's um, PM, and, and I would say, a lot of women are struggling with period related issues that are related to potentially issues of low progesterone, for example. And so low progesterone shows up as PMS. So women with PMS have an atypical progesterone curve in the second half of their cycle, meaning that the progesterone drops off too soon. And can you um, just, can we just back up one sec and for people who are listening, who are just chiming in, you know, joining in, maybe they aren't familiar with what progesterone is and what, why it's so important, because this again gets back to ovulation, right? If we don't ovulate, we can't make progesterone. So talk about what progesterone is just briefly and, and why it's so important. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Because sometimes yeah, I yeah. just kind of rattle on. No, so, I do the same thing. <laughs> well, if I take you through a menstrual cycle, so, you know, the first day of your menstrual cycle is the first day of your period. And once your period finishes, what's happening at that point of your cycle is that the follicles are starting to develop. And so your brain is essentially having a conversation with the ovary, releasing follicle stimulating hormone. But basically what you need to know is the egg is developing. And as the egg develops, that follicle uh, that holds the egg is making estrogen. So we actually make estrogen and progesterone in our ovaries, which a lot of women don't realize. So once your estrogen rises to a certain level, that triggers ovulation, essentially sends a feedback to your brain. We release luteinizing hormone. Um, if you want all the nitty gritty details, but essentially that is what triggers ovulation. Once you ovulate, so I think it's fascinating, you know, the ovary bursts open and releases the egg and that same follicle that was developing that burst open turns into the corpus luteum, which is essentially a temporary endocrine gland. So we switch from the follicular development to then the luteinizing, the corpus, uh, corpus luteum formation. So, you know, throughout the cycle, then the first half of your cycle before ovulation, you're making all this estrogen. Estrogen is helping your uterine lining to develop. It's causing your cervix to produce cervical fluid. So one of the uh, key things that we're looking for when I talk about, you know, the fertility awareness method is cervical fluid production. And so you may notice 
clear, stretchy, kind of like raw egg whites that you can stretch between your fingers or the lotion-y, hand lotion type of fluid. Um, and that's what you're producing as you approach ovulation. Yeah. And then once you <laughs> ovulate, um, the progesterone shuts down your mucus production. So typically we observe then what are called dry days for the rest of the cycle. Progesterone helps to mature the uterine lining to, to prepare it for a fertilized egg in the event that you become pregnant. And uh, progesterone is, is actually crucial for conception. And so in a normal healthy cycle, we have approximately an equal time frame of kind of estrogen being high and progesterone being high. So if we think of an average cycle being about 28 or 29 days, that's half the cycle where estrogen is, is pretty high and then the second half where progesterone. And these hormones work together. So one of the things I talked about in the fifth vital sign is how estrogen has this proliferative effect. It causes things to grow. That's why too much estrogen unopposed is associated with things like cancer. Um, so in a healthy cycle, we have sufficient days of progesterone and progesterone has this initially proliferative, but then anti-proliferative effect after it's, you know, you're exposed to it for an extended period of time. And so together, these hormones, when they're working properly, when we're producing sufficient amounts, help to protect us from things like breast cancer and endometrial cancer. Um, so, I mean, I could go on about progesterone, but just generally speaking, that is why it's important. But also when your hormones are balanced, then you wouldn't. So it's really common for women to have PMS symptoms, whether it's irritability, anger, sadness, teariness, um, cravings you know, all of those things. Yeah. Uh, and it's common for women to have a lot of pain and things like that with their periods, but that's not normal. When things are working normally, optimally, when you have sufficient estrogen and progesterone and the correct amounts, when your body's filtering those hormones correctly, when things are working the way they should, you know, you, you might still feel a little different as you approach your period, but it shouldn't change your life. It shouldn't ruin anything. It shouldn't be, yeah. you know, ridiculous. So you like can't. distracting or yeah. make you miserable. Yeah. So you were talking about progesterone and PMS when I interrupted you to explain progesterone, which you did beautifully. Um, one of the things with progesterone too, is that it's, it's quite calming. Yes. It, like, it's really important for our brain, neuro health, and our mood. And so when our hormones are offline, too high, too low, or off in ratios, it can also affect us deeply, emotionally, cognitively, and make us feel pretty miserable. Yeah, I mean, it can affect your ability to sleep, and it certainly can exacerbate a lot of symptoms. So... Uh, you know, I've worked with a number of clients who are seeing premenstrual spotting. So, you know, they've ovulated and whether it's one or two days of spotting to even a week or two, you yeah. know, I've worked with women who ovulate and then they're just spotting the whole time. Um, they're having raging PMS symptoms. Uh, you know, they're, they're the second half of the cycle is too short. And, you know, meanwhile, they're you, you often also struggling with kind of other hormone imbalance related issues and so what's interesting is that there's it's kind of like this buzzword people talk about low progesterone as if it's like this big secret what i find is that um particularly as we get into our mid-30s early 40s 
we have a lot of demands on our time. I know for me, I have my business and I have my little kids and I've got all kinds of stuff going on. And most, and I also have, uh, you know, parents that are a little bit older as well. And so a lot of us in this age range have a lot of things on top of us. So what I find happens is that we drop the basics. So I get it when, you know, the, your eyes roll over when someone like me talks about, you know, getting enough sleep and getting enough to eat, but literally these and meditation or like, yes, have yeah, a like relaxation when? practice. Yeah. And then how much are you exercising? Because a lot of women are really stressed at this point. And so they're, you know, at this age range, there's a lot going on and, you know, yeah. all that. And so you're exercising to get rid of stress, but you find yourself exercising seven times a day and twice on Sundays. Um, so, so what yeah, so, living on coffee, yes. you know, having coffee for breakfast, <laughs> coffee, is and coffee, coffee is breakfast, <laughs> a muffin for lunch. And maybe it's a smoothie. Maybe it's not coffee, but it's it's like a liquid meal, and that's it. So we're well, yeah. undernourished. We're undernourished. We're overstressed. We're overexercising, and that's like the three cardinal triggers of suppressing our ovulation, right? Well, and we're often at this age range. I mean, I can speak for myself and a lot of my clients, but your body is a bit different. So. Whereas before you might have been able to get away with not sleeping and eating a lot of stuff. And now maybe you're putting on weight easier. And so you're doing the exercise and not eating also potentially because you're wanting to kind of lose a few extra pounds. So Mm -hmm. long story short, what I find is really important and what, what I'm kind of talking about a lot in my practice these days is going back to those basics. One of those really important things is eating enough food. And so I guess I'll, I will die on this hill. But in order to have a healthy I'll be there with cycle, you. I will be, I will be right <laughs> on that hill with you. I feel like a, like an old like a West Indian grandmother, like eat, eat, eat more food. Um, <laughs> But ultimately, in order to have a healthy menstrual cycle, uh, we need to have enough food. And that means enough protein and fat and carbohydrates in balance so that we're not constantly spiking our blood sugar up and down. But that so we're also getting a sufficient amount of food for our bodies to run properly. So the amount of women that I work with who may have, you know, their temperatures are super low when they're charting and they have all of these signs of low progesterone and they're asking me, like, do I need to get progesterone, you know, cream? Do I need, yeah. do I have a thyroid problem? And often what I'm saying is, well, you need to have breakfast instead of the coffee. And when you need to have enough protein. And if you're working out four to five times a week, I've worked with the number of women who potentially need to eat twice or three times as much protein as they're getting yeah. to actually sustain their energy levels. So um, that's something where kind of going back to those basics and even taking a nod back to the concept of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. The way I work with clients is we start charting together. So we get like a good baseline of what's happening. And if we're seeing some of those signs, what I often say is, okay, well, let's get in there and just address some of this stuff. Let's see if you're getting enough sleep, like you said, a relaxation practice, um, making sure you're getting enough to eat. Let's just deal with those basic things. And then let's see what the cycle looks like next time. And so if you have a true underlying issue, endocrine dysfunction, or something's really wrong with you, then after you address all those basic factors, you'll still see those Uh, kind of traits sticking around in the cycle. But more often than not, we see the cycle shift and move when we address a lot of those outstanding, very basic, um, basic health aspects. 
And you mentioned um, the issue of not letting your blood sugar spike and have those drops, right? So we talked about insulin resistance. We talked about blood sugar balance and how that can show up in the cycle. And then that also brings us back to how understanding this now is actually preventative medicine, if you will, for those predispositions that we may have. And, you know, I, I often say your diagnosis doesn't ha- or your your history doesn't have to be your destiny. So just because your family has diabetes doesn't mean you have to have diabetes. There are these switches that we can flip on and off with the food we eat and insulin resistance and inflammation, both of which Lisa has mentioned a few times, are probably the two biggest underlying factors with most chronic disease that affects us in our 50s, 60s and beyond. So this is just another example. And also that if you're tracking your cycle, you can see it start to come online into healthy parameters. And that becomes almost like that, again, for lack of a better way of putting it, report card that you get each month to say, yeah, this is actually getting better. That is the external reflection. This is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, and all earlier, within our reach. Well, and this is the greatest thing about charting because it's something that, um, you know, any, and it doesn't always have to be as detailed. I know I teach a method that's very detailed and, but even just tracking your period at the most basic level can give you so much information. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned earlier was, you know, this whole thing about like, well, you know, you're talking about the menstrual cycle and diabetes and like, how could those things be connected? And so, I mean, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome is, is interesting because it's a metabolic condition. Women with PCOS um, are significantly more likely to develop diabetes. So how does this play out in the menstrual cycle? Well, it plays out by long, irregular cycles. Um, PCOS is characterized by insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, inflammation, um, and these things work together to then uh, it, it, your body doesn't really respond. You know, you're you're getting your 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 um, pituitary is producing all this FSH, and the ovaries aren't really responding to it. So you end up with these long irregular cycles. So f- when a woman's charting it's often very, very easy to pick up PCOS because yeah. she is, she does ovulate and she does have cycles, but often she's having long periods of time uh, in between those ovulations. So her cycles might be 35 days, 45 days, 50 days uh, if her PCOS is uncontrolled. And so like you said, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's unfair. So that part of it, we all have to deal with. Everyone has their like cross to bear or everyone has their own sensitivities. So for me, yeah. it might be that I'm really sensitive to, to, to sugar. And if I, you know, eat the higher glycemic carbohydrates, it affects my cycle. Uh, whereas for another woman, it might be something completely different. But when you can identify those things, uh, it's, it's kind of unfair. But on, on the other hand, it's kind of nice. We're not all the same. We all have, you know, it's, it's, it's so different. What works for one person might not work for another. But the beauty of this understanding your cycle is that your cycle is this customized way for you to learn what actually works for your body. Uh, it I allows you to, well, it, it, cause it, cause your cycle isn't like anyone. I mean, I have clients that can eat all the bread and, <laughs> and it doesn't affect their cycle. And I have clients who eat the bread and then, you know, all of a sudden they're ovulating on day 37. And so right. this really allows you to figure out what works for you. 
And, and it changes over your life cycle, right? Like you may be able to eat the bread in your 30s, but now at 48, you might not be able to. And now you can start to pay attention to that. And I think it's so important to really, I want to emphasize one thing too, as a physician, we don't learn this stuff in medical school. I learned this when I was 15 because I was digging into some, you know, out of the box stuff and it became how I live my life. But when you go to your physician, look, half of all women with PCOS remain undiagnosed. And this is not a small condition that has no consequences. As Lisa said, aptly, it's a metabolic condition. So it has all the same risks if you're untreated as diabetes down the road. And other things like we now know PCOS is a cause of binge eating. So there may be things that you feel like you can't control in your life and you're beating yourself up for. You can't lose the weight. You have depression, you are binge eating, and you're, you think there's something wrong with you when actually those are all symptoms that if you're actually gathering the data and you can put that data together with your charting of your cycles, actually becomes powerful diagnostic data that when you bring to your primary care provider or your gynecologist or your nurse midwife or whomever you bring that to, and they see it in an aggregate like that way, it's going to increase your likelihood of getting the information that you need to help you get answers. So really, really important stuff. Well, and Lisa, think, one of, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say one of the takeaways for, you know, everyone who's watching this would be that even with something like PCOS, it's possible to significantly improve your cycle parameters by learning about it, understanding what flares it up. And adjusting even the macro ratio. It's not about not eating. It's about eating. I want everyone to eat. Uh, but it's about learning about how, you know, pairing sufficient protein and fat with lower glycemic carbohydrates. For example, I've seen women have incredible success to regulate their cycle without drugs, without hormones. Sometimes supplements are needed. Sometimes medication is needed. But ultimately, um, really understanding this uh, connection between our cycle. And, and I think for a lot of women it's so empowering to know that I can actually do something that improves my health, right? Like I can actually, like what I do, what I eat, how I sleep, how I move can actually help uh, and change my cycle. And even with medication, you know, I feel like when natural things are working on their own, the integrative approach, you don't need the medication. But when we are doing the medication, we absolutely still need to be addressing these underlying factors because just taking the pill or just taking metformin even though they may help with symptoms and, and metformin can be anti-inflammatory and reduce blood sugar, those are not lifelong solutions. We still have to address all these other factors. Lisa, one of the um, things I know that you and I talked about pre-game when we were chatting and that I know a lot of women just have huge questions about is hormonal birth control and forms of contraception. What women can do when they don't want to use those and how they can track their cycle, both to prevent pregnancy, but also we can use this to improve fertility. So we've got both sides of the coin here. Can you talk about um, how you approach both contraception and fertility and how the cycle plays into all of that? Yeah, I mean, I can, I feel like I can come across as really anti birth control because I talk about the side effects uh, in detail. <laughs> I provide somebody's research got to, right? <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting because I've had some doctors contact me like, oh, you know, I really wish I could recommend your book, but you, you're too negative about birth control. And I'm thinking, it wasn't me. I was reading from the studies. 
so, I mean, when it comes to birth control, my approach is informed consent. I think it's really important for women to know what it is. What are the side effects? And mm-hmm. the reason why I think that's really important is because over the years, I've spoken to so many women who they did have side effects, but they had no idea that it could be linked to the pill. So maybe they were depressed or anxious, or they had panic attacks, or they had recurrent yeast infections, things that they didn't know could be directly related to their pill use. And so, you know, it's often like a desperate night of Googling that they you know, see some random forum where someone said it and then they're like, oh, wow. And then they go off the pill and then they realize it was the pill. So, you know, yes, midnight Googling would be great. Um, And then in terms of the use, I feel like uh, this knowledge would lead to three possible options. So if you know what the side effects are, some women are going to be like, okay, that's not for me. That's a little bit too much. But other women are going to say, well, you know what? I'm glad that I know, but I'm still going to use it because maybe I'm, you know, 20 years old and I'm in college and I need to not get pregnant. Um, But they may modify their use. So instead of using it for a full 20 years, maybe they would use it for five and then look for a different option. And then there's women in the third category who would use it for just as long. So when it comes to conception and all of these different options with hormonal and non-hormonal, I think for women who've chosen hormonal contraceptive methods, if you're wanting to have children at some point, I think that it is important to learn about the transition phase that your body goes through post-pill. So some women go off the pill and they get their period, you know, they ovulate 14 days later and get their period right away. But for some women, it takes a long time. And I, I think initially, when I was younger, it would have been easier to be like, oh, the pill is at fault for all this. But what the research tells us is that if anything, the pill isn't causing women not to get their period when they come off of it, or isn't causing infertility, but it's potentially masking anything that was there. So we just spent a long time talking about how the menstrual cycle is a vital sign and how you can tell all this interesting Uh, information about your health by paying attention to it. Well, if you're on the pill, you're not ovulating and you're not getting a cycle. So if you did have PCOS, or if you did have HA, you may still continue to get your bleed every 28 days and not really know that there's anything wrong. So then when you come off the pill, if you have an issue like that, it reveals itself. And so that's one of the challenges with the pill infertility. Uh, so if you were put on the pill because you had an issue, because you your periods were so incredibly painful that you couldn't function, because you never knew when your next period is going to come, or because you stopped getting periods, then you're in a category where, um, so my recommendation, um, and I'd be interested to hear what your recommendation is, but if, if a woman's planning to conceive and she has some kind of lead time, I would suggest maybe to consider coming off the pill I say 18 months to two years ahead. I know that's a long time. It doesn't have to be that long. But if you had an issue and that's why you were put on it, then I say, okay, so if you, you if you give yourself that 18 year months to two year lead time, if you come off and there is an issue, you actually have a little buffer window where you can work on that. You can, you know, get yourself to a functional practitioner, medical doctor, sort it all out before the pressure's on for you to try to conceive. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I would really love to see a longitudinal study on, because we know that 80% of people who come off the pill will cycle within three months, right? But then there's these other 20% that it can take six months, a year, 18 months, two years. We we see this, this is medically well-documented. I would love to see the longitudinal study that said, who went on the pill for contraception and didn't have other symptoms and who went on the pill 
for contraception and had symptoms or who went on the pill for just symptoms and of those, which are the ones that get their cycle back and which don't. Cause my guess is it would be exactly what you say because, and I see this in my practice left and right. The woman who got put on the pill at 15 because she had cystic acne or irregular periods or heavy periods or painful periods or all of that. Now she's 32 or 35. She's ready to get pregnant. She's come off the pill it's been whatever, three months, six months, 12 months. I see all kinds of variations. And not only is she not getting pregnant, but the acne's back and she has no idea why. And the heavy periods are back and the irregular periods are back. And it was literally just not only suppressing the whole time, but with certain conditions like endometriosis, the, the scarring, the adhesions, all that may still be happening while the cycle is suppressed. So it's a very uh, unfortunate set of circumstances. So I agree. Giving lead time, particularly people who feel conception is more urgent because of their age or where they are in their life cycle. A lot of people are like, well, I was planning to get pregnant this year. It was my window between law school and my law firm job. And now it's, you know, it's not happening. So get, definitely. And then all the things you can do to replete nutrition and get your cycle back on track. So, so important by all the things we're we're talking about. Um, all right. Before we, as we wrap up, I have a question for you. What is something that you feel like you just can't stop thinking about or talking about in your work right now? What is it like you're just, this is, you're obsessed about right this minute? Um, let me think. I mean, I feel like we've talked about a lot of them. I feel like currently what's very, very current is, is protein. Mm-hmm. I'm working with a lot of women who are kind of my age. I'm, I'm 38 and, you know, a lot of women who are super health conscious, really active um, and really wondering why they're not seeing any cervical fluid and why their luteal phases are so short and all those kinds of things. And for it really being this like light bulb moment when I break down for them that they actually, you know, because they, you know, eat, eat so healthy and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's not very exciting because we already talked about it. But I feel like that is actually one of the things that I'm talking about the most in my practice now, just getting women. Yeah, to- I talk about blood sugar balance and I call it energy balance, you know, in the in my new book, um, but also fats, right? We've gotten so fat phobic as a culture that um, we forget that hormones are actually made from fats, right? We have to have enough fat. I, I could agree. If there, so based on what you, you know, we've talked about, if there was one really important takeaway or one thing that you wish all women, women knew, or one thing you could just like change about women's healthcare right now, what would that be? I think it would go back to the vital sign. I think if there was one thing I could change, it would be that we actually understand from a young age that our menstrual cycle is a sign of health and that we, um, and also if, if we could um, stop teaching women to be so afraid of their fertility. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing that we didn't really touch on today is uh, something I see a lot is that when I'm working with women who are in their late thirties and early forties, they're often just as, you know, if they're avoiding pregnancy, they're often just as afraid of accidentally getting pregnant at 40 than they, as they were when they were, you know, 18. And that conversation about how fertility changes with age just doesn't exist. 
And so that's something that I feel really strongly about. So the message that a lot of the younger 20-year-olds seem to be getting is that you're either on the pill or pregnant. Or, you know, if you're not on the pill, it's just a matter of time until you're pregnant. And I just want the takeaway to be that it is actually possible to prevent pregnancy without hormones. People do it. Uh, You can use uh, fertility awareness based method effectively. We have other non hormonal options that are available. (laughs) And uh, when you're not on hormones, and you're cycling naturally, and you're learning how to avoid pregnancy that way, it is a way of preserving fertility. Uh, And it's a way of um, identifying and just monitoring your overall health. So that would be the takeaway, I think. So powerful, so powerful that we have so much more agency over our fertility and conception and choice just inherent in the messages that our bodies give us. Quick question, Lisa, before we go. Um, In terms of tracking, I, I started tracking my cycle when I was 15. That was in 1981. It was before the term fertility tracker existed, um, I still like paper charts. I find them some very organic, but there are some great fertility trackers out there. What's your, um, what are your words of wisdom on women who, if they want to start tracking their cycles now, whatever age you're at, cause it's never too late. Um, even menopausally, we still have, especially after those first couple of years after menopause, we still are, our cycles are still doing things. So I think it's never too late, but, um, what are your favorite ways to, recommend people to start tracking their cycle? Well, I am a big fan of paper charts. I made a paper charting book. I I didn't really think that women would still want it. So I started tracking my cycles around the year 2000 or so. And that was before there were smartphones and apps and all that. So I printed off spreadsheets and (laughs) bound them. Uh, I think there's a lot of value. Yes. (laughs) Um, They're really cute. I made some books back in the day. Um, And there's a lot of value in doing that for women who are interested. So surprisingly, there's still quite a few women that really like to do it that way. Um, When you're charting on paper, it can't correct you. So you really have to learn to do it. And I think there's a lot of value in that. With that said, though, there's tons of apps and options. And so my general recommendation is for women who are wanting to chart and they're wanting to start understanding their cycle and also women who are more serious about fertility awareness tracking. I think it's really important to choose an app that gives you the option to turn off the prediction setting. I mean, you don't have to turn it off, but I love that. I love that. You're, (laughs) I love that you're saying that say more about that. (laughs) Well, and so the reason for that is because Ultimately, even though I can stand here and talk about the menstrual cycle and how, um, you know, when you're tracking your cycle, it's not about predicting ovulation. It's about understanding which days are fertile, which aren't. Most of us, though, have been trained to believe that the cycle is always 28 days, that we always ovulate on day 14. And so when most women start charting, they're looking for that pattern. And so at around day 14, they're expecting to ovulate. So what can happen is if they see cervical fluid earlier, if they ovulate before, (laughs) if they ovulate later, and the app tells them that they're supposed to be ovulating on this other day, then they start to get confused. And so, uh, and you kind of, trust the app as opposed to your yes. your body and i always say your app doesn't know what's going on in your panties so you should i love that <laughs> 
you should know what's actually happening. So that's my my general recommendation. I mean, there's a my my favorite app. There's no affiliation, you know, yet, <laughs> but my favorite app is uh, Read Your Body. It's a, a newer app that was developed by a, a group of women who know charting. So the app is like for people who chart and who are charting with specific methods and are you know really into fertility awareness. It's like it's like wow, this was made for me. Um, so great endorsement for them there, but. Uh, there's lots of different apps, but just look for one that you can turn off the predictor setting and, and just actually put in your data and interpret it yourself. <laughs> I'm smiling so hard because I couldn't agree with you more. And also this, you know, this reliance on external technology. And I'm, I'm laughing almost because my daughter, one of my daughters was, was trying out an app and she was going through some irregular cycles. And she said she was just having like the most irritated PMSE kind of day at work and then the the app somehow binged in this like signal that you're ovulating and she started cursing at the app and like slamming she's like yeah no this is clearly not dialed into what's going on with me I love that the app doesn't know what's going on in your panties that should be a slogan Lisa, you are a font of wisdom and experience and curiosity and clarity. And I love your work and such a delight and privilege to have you here. I know you are busy. So thank you for taking so much time to illuminate us on what you do and some of who you are and how powerful our bodies and our cycles are. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing chat and congratulations on your new book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.